marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The first legally sold marijuana here goes to an Iraqi war veteran. A new insurance study out this week looked at car crashes in several states that allow the use of recreational marijuana. Barry Peterson. You're a doc. You've studied this. You've talked to the researchers. You're right. saying marijuana can kill cancer cells. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Marijuana is illegal under federal law. States have legalized recreation. It's no wonder you can't open your eyes. What do you expect to open yourself up with this wrong stuff? What do you know about pot? Good morning. You're listening to the Cannabis Hour, a bi-weekly radio program where we discuss all things cannabis. I'm your host, Jen Procacci, and thanks for joining me today. I've got a great guest for you today. Her name is Eleanor Kuntz, and she is a trained herbalist as well as the co-founder and CEO of LeafWorks Incorporated, a botanical verification company. Together, we'll be discussing Eleanor's journey in cannabis and herbalism, as well as the services that LeafWorks offers to our cannabis community. That includes gender ID tests for cannabis plants, and we'll be sure discussing those. March is Women's History Month, so I look forward to hearing Eleanor's perspective as a woman in business and female cannabis community member. Before we get started with that, I'd like to let you know that here at the station, we have just begun our spring quiet drive. The show must go on, and in order for it to do so, we need the support of members and listeners like you. Here at the station, we haven't wanted to interrupt crucial programming with a traditional fundraising drive. So we're holding a quiet drive in hopes of raising enough money to meet our budget goal. KZYX is committed to covering emerging stories and delving into the details of what's happening right now by bringing you the voices of people in our community who have the information. This vital news coverage, as well as KZYX's essential music service, is made possible through community support. If you're a member of KZYX, thank you. Your support ensures local journalism, statewide and national coverage, as well as an informed public. Help us sustain this community resource. It's an important time for us all to be well informed. KZYX is committed to bringing you reliable information about what's going on in your community, as well as the world at large. You depend on reliable information so you can make informed decisions. We're able to bring you this important coverage thanks to the generosity of listeners who gave during earlier fundraisers. Please join them and join the KZYX community as a member. Approximate costs to run KZYX include $1.50 per minute, $80 per hour, and $1,900 $115 per day. If you would like to become a part of the KZYX membership and help our community radio station sustain itself, please donate today. You can do so by calling us at 
895-2324 by sending a check to Post Office Box 904 in Philo, California, 95466, or by far the easiest is visiting our website at kzyx.org and click the link at the top of the homepage. We have fabulous thank you gifts available, including KZYX masks, bandanas, socks, tote bags, three different signed prints by Winston Smith, including one of the Green Day album cover Insomniac, and Eaton Emergency Solar Crank Powered Radios, great for these uncertain times. <laughs> you can view our thank you gifts on our website, kzyx.org, once you click the donate link at the top of our homepage. I sincerely hope you consider becoming a member today. All right, our wonderful guest today is Eleanor Kuntz. She is a geneticist, environmentalist, entrepreneur, and cannabis advocate. Eleanor Kuntz, PhD, is, tra is a trained herbalist and entrepreneur who is bridging the gap between traditional herbalism and modern science. Eleanor works with plant genetics to design and implement best agricultural practices for improving medicinal qualities and implementing responsible raw ingredient choices to mitigate supply chain risk for natural product companies. As a U.S. Forest Service volunteer, she re researches plant population demographics and dispersal dynamics to develop guidelines for sustainable wild collection and permitting regulations in southeastern native plant populations. Devoted to honoring the benefits of plant-based medicine, enhancing our connection to the wild world around us, and deepening our understanding of the relationship between plant, ecosystem, and planet, Eleanor recently merged her plant passions by co-founding LeafWorks Incorporated, a botanical verification company using genetics to improve medicinal quality, sustainability, and transparency in the supply chain for the best possible plant experience. She is also co-founder of the People's Herbarium, the first herbarium committed to documenting and preserving cannabis cultivars and varietals, along with the collective knowledge gained through community engagement. Eleanor has a BA in biology with a focus in botany from Smith College and a PhD in genetics from the University of Georgia. Her academic work focused on population diversity and gene flow, along with the evolutionary history and current genetic exchange between wild and cultivated plants. She graduated from the Sage Mountain School of Herbal Studies, where she studied under the mentorship of Rosemary Gladstar. Welcome, Eleanor. Are you here with us? I certainly am. It's so lovely to be here. Thanks for the wonderful introduction. Oh, thank you, Eleanor, so much for taking the time to join us today. Where are you broadcasting from this morning? This morning, I am in Sebastopol, California, in the LeafWorks office. Wonderful. Right there as our neighbor in Sonoma County. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I'd like to begin our time today by asking you something that I ask all of my guests at the beginning of our show, and that is, what is your personal relationship with cannabis? 
Well, that is a, a, a big question. Cannabis is one of my most special plant allies. So I've had a very long history with cannabis, um, not only as a, a plant that I use personally, but also a plant that really has the power to unlock a lot of different aspects of the work that I'm interested in doing from looking at it as a medicinal plant looking at it through its immense diversity that it, it has the potential to grow into and also really just looking at it as a way. It's, it's one of these few plants where you have an immense community that circles around the plant and it brings all of these different people together. So I think it almost has this, um, without trying to, you know, without sounding hokey, but it almost has a magical quality to it where it really can um, bridge a lot of gaps. And so it, it has a, a really special place in my heart because of the multi-layered nature of my personal and professional interaction with plant. I loved what you had to say there about it being a plant um, where the community circles around it. That is certainly true. And how did you first enter the cannabis community out here in California? You know, it actually started with my um, my first partner. Um, we were together for um, almost two decades, and he was a second-generation grower. So I was really, I, you know, I'd already peripherally been involved with cannabis as, you know, a plant in my life, but really understanding the depth and the dynamics of the community that surrounds the plant really happened um, with that relationship. And I was, you know, introduced to the process that I think many of us either do on the daily or have done at some point in our lives where we were driving up to visit some family, um, driving up some hills in Humboldt County, going through gate after gate after gate. And it's just an experience I'd never had, and it really opened my eyes to just this whole world that many of us um, have no clue about. And that relationship really brought me into a deeper understanding of, you know, the work and the trials and the tribulations um, that really circle around a lot of the, the happenings um, throughout the, the 90s is really when this was occurring for me, when I was really getting deeply introduced in this, in this way. Um, just, the, you know, the difficulties of just growing a plant. And, yeah, it really opened my eyes, and it started an even deeper love affair with cannabis, to be very honest. Oh, that's a beautiful story. So you have such a varied um, professional background here, and I'm wondering, at the point at which you became introduced to the cannabis community, had you already uh, studied herbalism, or did that come after? Yes. So I was already a trained herbalist. Um, I actually met this this person um, on Sage Mountain studying with Rosemary. So he, he entered my life during that phase of my herbal education, and you know, Rosemary is a very conservative woman and was such a leader and is such a leader in herbalism that cannabis is not really anything we talked about in herb school. And I think that really stems not from honoring the plant, but more just really herbalists were already on the fringe. And so you really wanted to avoid talking or teaching about things that would get you in trouble for just the general work you were doing. You were already kind of, you know, there were already herbalists during this period of time and also in the 80s that were 
you know, thrown in jail for um, acting as healers, right? Like acting as healers outside of the medical community and um, dealing with other plants and, you know, prescribing treatment plants, um, treatment plans, excuse me, surrounding other plants. And so cannabis was never really in that mix, but the power of, of plants to heal the body was something I've always been very interested in. And whereas I, I don't consider myself an herbalist that has enough knowledge really to act as an herbalist in community, my real interest in going to herb school was to understand how we were using these plants so that I could understand um, really how my work in the forest and with populations and um, population diversity, how I could understand the impact of herbalism on those plant communities and how those two things could coexist in synergy and positively affect one another as opposed to negatively affect one another. So I was, I was in herb school for a different reason. And so then when looking at cannabis, it was, it was a whole different relationship because instead of having herbalists, you know, going into the forest and, and wildcrafting, you really had individuals who were specifically cultivating a very diverse group of different cannabis plants for specific purposes. And, you know, the, the driven cultivation was exceptionally intriguing to me. The, you know, the point that I'm going to grow this plant in this way for this chemical profile because of this medicinal aspect, that dynamic was, was new and really exciting and different than the kind of herbal work that I'd done, you know, with a lot of the other southeastern understory plants that I'm so in love with. Oh, thank you for that very fascinating uh, description of that time. And I think it's really interesting that you pointed out that there is was sort of a prohibitionist um, vibe against herbalists. And then interestingly enough, the prohibition against cannabis fed into that community in that way as well. That really stood out to me there. So you are the co-founder and CEO of LeafWorks, and that's a botanical verification company located in Sebastopol. What inspired you to found Leaf Forks? Oh, goodness. There's kind of a long story there, but the, the short her version is that after grad school, I was working in natural products, really looking at botanical supply chains. So plants are, you know, they're grown everywhere, and we sit in particular communities, and a lot of us are using plants that come from other locations. And when you look across the botanical supply chain, there's a lot of issues that come up. And so a lot of the work that I was doing at this point in my life was working on how do we generate the best quality plants to put into our medicinal preparations, and how do we ensure that the plants that we're buying are consistent. And so I was really looking at the farming practices, the harvesting practices. Um, in particular, one of the, the larger projects that I was working on in this period of time was with Senna. And so senna is used as a, a laxative plant. And so if you're making a preparation, you really want to make sure the chemical components that have that laxative effect are the same, right? Every time you use that product, it can't be variable. You need to know it's got the same amount of those chemicals in it so that, you know, you're not either not going to the bathroom or you're running to the bathroom. So that consistency in this was very important. And in doing this work, it was really clear that, once you could figure out how to generate these really high-quality plants, the next 
huge issue was um, an immense amount of fraud that was happening in the botanical supply chain. So as you pass plants from farm to broker to larger broker to, you know, country-level broker, and these plants are getting into containers and moving into, from one country to another, there's just so much fraud that's happening, and you have people cutting the, the, cutting the plants, like, you know, taking other plants that test similarly and adding them as fillers, or you're getting um, plants that are harvested from the wild, and you have um, accidental fraud where you have wild collectors that are collecting the, the correct plant and some sister species or co-occurring plants that aren't the correct plant at the same time. And so really understanding, like, how do we deal with this situation so we know what plants we're really dealing with? And that's important not only for the end consumer, of course, that they know what's in that bottle, but also the manufacturer, that they're not buying something that once they run it through their process, at the end they realize something is wrong. You know, that's been a very expensive thing to figure out down the line in a manufacturing process. And in our current situation, the way we're really looking at plant identity is through chemistry, which is very powerful. Chemistry is an amazing way to tell the quality of a plant, looking at those chemical um, profiles, you know, whether it be cannabis or senna or ashwagandha, whatever the plant you're looking at. Um, but because plants, they share their chemistry, you know, lemons have limoline as does cannabis, and so we have all this co-occurring chemistry, it's a really difficult task to pick out the chemicals that can uniquely identify a plant. And individuals in the supply chain are very smart, and if you're inclined to be tricky, you can find plants that adulterate your primary product that are invisible to the chemistry screen. So that's, real, that's a really big deal. And so looking at this as a geneticist, it became very obvious that a more straightforward way to identify these plants was using genetics. Because when you're using genetics, you find the plants that are in there and you don't have this confounding issue of shared chemistry. And so that's really the inception story for LeafWorks is that my business partner, Karen, was also in graduate school with me at the time. Um, and she was working on next-generation sequencing techniques in a lab that was really developing these kinds of protocols where we could look at large amounts of data in more effective ways so we could do these kinds of botanical identifications using genetics. And so that was how we started LeafWorks was transitioning to let's do some assays to test and validate the supply chain using genetics as opposed to chemistry. Well, that is fascinating. And when you found at LeafWorks, did you, uh, was your intention there for it to be a company that was primarily geared towards testing cannabis? You know, it wasn't. And our, our overarching mission is still very much to be a botanical um, supply chain certifier in all herbs. But we realized um, going in that there was this deep need in cannabis and a lack of resources and a lack of attention. And then that in combination with my love and affinity towards not only the plant, but the community that I've been so deeply introduced to um, really led us in that direction um, organically. Wonderful. 
So LeafWorks is a woman-owned company, and you are a woman entrepreneur and a female member of the cannabis community, and you're also a woman in science. What have those experiences been like for you? I know that's a very broad question, but please feel free to speak on whatever inspires you about that. Yeah. Um, being a woman, in, a woman in science or a woman in STEM is an amazing thing. Um, that community is growing and has got a really wonderful center around it. Of course, just like any of these um, higher tech um, professions that have been more traditionally really dominated by men, there is, you know, a wonderful expansion of that now. And I think that, you know, just like anything, we're still, we're still working on it and we're still getting better at incorporating women and really getting them excited about science early. I think that's the most important thing. We all have natural propensities, but really allowing little girls to explore those natural tendencies and encourage them if they have interest in math and science to really go down those routes. Um, I think that diversity, whether it be of gender or cultural background, is exceptionally important in any kind of endeavor because those different perspectives really open up new discoveries, right? Looking at something from a different angle is a really good thing to making discovery and um, getting out of, you know, a rut that may be keeping you stuck within a particular way of thinking or, um, like, philosophy. So I think that any kind of work that really aims to expand inclusion or, you know, expand who's included in not only looking at the problems but figuring out solutions um, is really good for all of us. So I'm excited about what's going on in that realm. And, you know, cannabis is a weird world. It's definitely, there's sectors of it that are very male-dominated. But it's also this beautiful, I don't know, juxtaposition where it's one of the only plants that I, it's not the only, but it's one of the few plants where you're really female-focused. You know, we're really interested in female plants and um, female flowers and understanding the, the femaleness of that, that work um, is something that even, you know, the most masculine bro of bros um, has in him <laughs> at the same time. So that's a really cool thing about cannabis and the whole community. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's been a wild ride, and we all have different weird stories that have happened, but I don't think it's very different than a lot of the other communities with those um, strange or not-so-great experiences. But I think the cannabis community is unique in the fact that there are a lot of women leaders who are really not only well-respected but doing amazing and great things um, within that community, and it's normalized which is wonderful. You know, it's not sort of odd to see a woman in a position of, you know, president or CEO of a cannabis company. It's sort of natural. And, and that's one of the things I really love about the cannabis community is just how many women are in positions of um, steering the organizations and really visioning where those, those organizations are going. Thank you, Eleanor, for sharing your perspective there. That is wonderful to hear. Um, will you speak a bit on the services that LeafWorks offers to cannabis cultivators? I know we have the gender ID tests, and I definitely want to dive into that, but I'm wondering what other services LeafWorks offers that the cannabis community can utilize. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we really started with our test looking at what are the issues that, you know, cultivators are experiencing throughout their growing cycle and throughout their field seasons, and how can we, using our skill set, make or offer tools that help that process, whether it's saving time, saving money, um, being able to choose the plants you truly want to choose, or all of those things at the same time, ideally. And so when we really started looking into what could we do, um, offering a, a basically a sex test, a gender ID test, was pretty much the easiest thing to tackle because you really just needed to understand what were those, you know, using genetics, what are the markers that really tag you as a male? And so we did some pre preliminary experiments in our own lab looking at SID pairs of males and females and really pulled out those regions of the genome that comprise the Y chromosome. And we made markers to that chromosome. And so when we're using our gender ID test, we're using multiple markers across that Y chromosome to ID those males so that we can pull them out of a grow if those aren't the plants you want to grow or breed with early and the idea is really to get them out of your out of your hoop house or your your starter house as early as possible, so you're not wasting time and resources growing those plants that you're not going to continue on with. And so we really started there with the gender idea, and then it became sort of a natural next step with um, the not only the the growth in the hemp industry, but also just the feminization of seeds in general, that we really wanted to make sure that the seeds people were selling and saying were feminized were actually feminized. And this really happened as a result of some pretty big um, lawsuits that happened last summer where there are a couple groups that were selling seeds that were labeled as feminized. And then when those farmers grew them up, you know, a large percentage of them were, in fact, genetically male. And so we started offering a feminized seed certification. And so this is a certification that either a seed producer can use where we'll batch test their seed lot as a third-party verifier and really vet that those seeds are 100% feminized seed. And if you're a, a farmer that's buying a large quantity of seeds, we can, of course, vet that that batch lot for you before you plant it in your field. And so that's been something that's been really nice because it's had a very quick and direct positive effect on people's um, operations. Um, those are sort of the two um, gender-based services that we offer. We also have really been diving into cultivar registration. And so what that is, it's, it's really looking at the botany of the plant and treating cannabis like we would any other plant. So that's something that's always kind of funny to me, that cannabis is this glorious plant that does so much for us, and we kind of treat it like an alien in some way. You know, we don't treat it like we would mint or, or ashwagandha or anything. We, it's, it's in its own little category, which in some way is good, but in other ways um, really does it a disservice because we're not categorizing it and really understanding the immense variety and the history of that breeding that's happened, you know, most of it in Prohibition. And so it's, it's, it's just got this weird history. And so the cultivar registration really acts to document the history of the plant, do those classical botanical descriptions that we do for all other plants, 
and normalized the idea of unique cultivars and varietals within cannabis so that when we're talking about something, we know we're talking about the same thing. And this is particularly important coming from my herbalism background because we know that many of these plants are used for medicinal purposes. And so if you have a particular plant that really works well for your pathology, you want to make sure that when you're going from either buying it from farm A or farm B and it's got this name attached to it, that you're really buying the same plant. And that's, that's you know, pretty obvious why that's true if you, you know, need it for a medicinal purpose and you have a particular plant or a group of plants that work for that that pathology. And so giving, giving fidelity to a name is, is super important. And I think we understand this in food, right? Like you go to the grocery store and you're buying a gala apple. It's always a gala apple. You're not sometimes getting a Fuji or sometimes getting a Red Delicious. You're, you're getting the apple you think you're getting. And it's really important because chem- the chemistry of cannabis is so complicated. And we only test for a very, very small fraction of those chemicals. And those chemicals, very different plants can have similar chemistries when you're just looking at three or four chemicals. And so really understanding that identity is is helpful on a lot of levels. So that um, cultivar registration is um, a really important um, aspect of the work that we're doing um, with, with that. So, Eleanor, something that um, stuck out to me as a question when you were talking about the feminized seed certification that you offer, which I think is a wonderful tool for both seed producers and cultivators. I don't have a ton of personal experience with feminized seed, but something I've always felt hesitant about that I've heard my community members express hesitation about also is the tendency for feminized seeds to potentially produce um, hermaphroditic offspring in the field. So is that something that your feminized seed certification process is able to also detect, the possibility of a plant's propensity to herm or not herm? Unfortunately, it is not. So that is also just a test that's looking for male plants. And so if you have a line or plants that have a high propensity to produce, you know, the opposite sex flower, so become a hermaphrodite, that we can't test for that. We're actually doing a pretty big dive into hermaphrodism right now on the, the research and science side because it is such an important issue. But that certification can't tell you the propensity for a plant to herm, unfortunately. But stay tuned because that work is, and we're not the only group, it's a very important issue and many groups are, are focusing on it right now because of the importance of really understanding what are the genetic components and the regulatory components within that genetic system that are really driving plants um, to, you know, to herm. And, I mean, it makes sense biologically. If, if you can feminize a plant, there is, you know, machinery within that plant to, to become a hermaphrodite. And so in some way we're probably exacerbating the problem by feminizing seed, but really understanding what's driving it can help us mitigate some of the negative effects of feminization so that we can gain the benefits from that process too, right? So it's, it's definitely a pro and con with the feminized seed. Absolutely. And I look forward to hearing more about that work as it progresses. 
I was hoping that you could sort of dive into what the process is like for doing a gender ID test for our cultivators out there who are interested but aren't sure if the process is something that will be doable for them. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the test is really straightforward, and it's nice because you can do the test as soon as your little seedlings are big enough to take a small leaf sample or cotyledon sample, depending on your plant, um, and not kill them. So <laughs> seven days after germination, if those little little ceilings are big enough to take a piece of tissue and not damage them. You just take that little piece of tissue. We have a collection system that consists of a card and a plant stake. And you'll take that little piece of tissue, put it on the paper, and really smash that leaf and try to get all that juice of that leaf. So you're really just trying to press the DNA into the paper. And once you do that, there's a, there's a, a plant tag that corresponds to that collection sector. And after you press those plants onto the card, you just send the cards back to the lab, and we do a Y chromosome detection screen. And within two to three days, depending on the time of year, you'll get your results back calling out which plants are female or, or male. So it's a pretty straightforward process. It certainly sounds like it is. Um, I have to say I have done this process myself through a different provider in the past, and I have considered it a great tool for my cultivation practice. It's wonderful to be able to eliminate um, male seedlings so early in the game and not deal with all the labor and care of uh, raising these seedlings until they show their gender and then inevitably, you know, we get rid of most of them. So if you're a cultivator and you're interested in this, as a cultivator myself, I urge you to check it out because it is a really interesting and great service. Um, and something that I wanted to bring yeah, up yeah. here and is that many members of the cannabis community, myself included, in the past have felt hesitant utilizing services from um, companies that use genetic processes such as yours because we did feel concerned about the security of our genetic data. So would you mind speaking on that a little bit, just sort of what is the perspective on that in, in the plant genetics industry and also what is LeafWorks specific genetic data policy? Yes, I have a, a lot of things to say about this. Um, first, and foremost, LeafWorks genetic data policies, we only use your sample to do the test that you are paying for. <laughs> um, that's fundamental to our business. Um, our, our business, we do a lot of experiments, and we, we run a lot of interesting um, diversity panels, but those are, are not generated through our client samples. Those are generated either through partnerships with various farms and, 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 and germplasm collectors or from our own personal collections. And so I think that's a very important differentiator that our client base is not part of our research program. And this is a real fundamental difference in the way LeafWorks operates because we are a genetics company that is founded by I mean, all of our core members have their PhD in genetics or botany, and we are very interested in doing, without sounding condescending, but good science. 
And part of doing good science is knowing the germplasm that you're working with. And so our fundamental research structure doesn't even allow us to take in client samples because we don't really know what those plants are. So they actually have no place in our research program because we have no information about them. And that's why the, the partnership with CANDOR is so important because the herbarium serves as the fundamental way in which botanists really work with and define plants. So if I'm going to, to like one of the tests that we've been working on for the herb community is um, ginkgo. So there's a, a huge amount of fraud in ginkgo. It's cut with celery. When you do the chemistry to identify ginkgo, that celery is an invisible adulterant, so you can't see it. And whereas celery for most people isn't going to be, you know, a big deal in the sense of causing allergies or, you know, those sorts of adverse effects, it's a really big deal when you think you're buying ginkgo and 40% of the biomass you're buying is, in fact, celery. So in doing that test, I mean, what we the first thing we do is we go to an herbarium and we get a population level survey of ginkgo. And ginkgo is pretty easy; it's very distinct; it's easy to ID. But when you get into things like echinacea or your mints or any of these other plants, cannabis included, you really want to know that the plants that you're calling a specific thing are really those plants, because if they're not, the genetic tests you're developing using those resources is based on incorrect information, right? So there's a little saying we have in the lab, like if you have crap data going in, you have a crap test going out. And so you really need to start at the fundamental level with your, your input in knowing the plant material you have. And so that's why we really have this fundamental difference in how we do science from some of our other competitors. It's not just a grab-and-go, let's look at all of the diversity and it'll shake out. It's, it's a much more elegant and nuanced approach to really understand the material you have and pick material specific for their characteristics or their evolutionary history to answer certain questions. And so we just have a different data mindset than um, some of our competitors where really more is more. And, you know, I think... We, the more you get into genetics, you realize more is not more, more is noise, especially when you have cases, you know, cannabis is very complicated because of it, you know, it's the prohibition that surrounded it and really the lack of clarity in the naming structure, like this naming problem, you know, you go to a dispensary and you buy something and it's got a name on it and there's very little fidelity between the name and the material that's in that jar. And so that's a fundamental problem in doing good science, if that's the case. It's like every time you bought echinacea, sometimes it was corn flour and other times it was echinacea. It's like a very big deal if you're using those samples to do science. And so we have that, that data policy um, of really making sure that we enumerate what we're looking at when we do research. And, yeah, we never use client information for tests. Um, I don't know, there was more to that question. I just had so much. I kind of went down a, a weird rabbit hole. But um, we also find that it's very important when looking at um, plants in general, like 
really honoring the history of those plants and understanding where they came from, which is really one of the drivers behind the cultivar registration, because these plants have exceptionally interesting and complicated histories. And you had individuals that have been working with certain plants for decades. Like, I've met plants that are older than I am, which is just mind-blowing and awesome. And you really want to be able to look at those plants and understand their history and know, you know, the breeding history and, and all of those things. And so in taking those plants in in the form of, like, cultivar registration and really writing those things down and documenting them, you're not only getting to a really good understanding of what is in a name, but also who are those individuals that have really moved that material forward. And in documenting that, you prevent outside organizations from being able to come in, utilize that material or take that material, and then flip it around and say, okay, the original growers can't use it anymore. You know, so it's a way of really protecting the community's resources and keeping those resources within the community. Eleanor, thank you so much for that extremely informative answer. I am learning so much by talking with you today, and I hope that our listeners are too. And speaking uh, um, speaking about our listeners, I'm going to be opening up our phone lines in just a few moments to hopefully take some calls from you out there. And just before I open up the lines, I want to take a moment to remind you that here at the station, we have just begun our spring quiet drive because the show must go on. And in order for it to do so, we need the support of members and listeners like you. Here at the station, we haven't wanted to interrupt our crucial programming with a traditional fundraising drive. So we're doing a quiet drive in the hopes of enough money to meet our budget goal. KZYX is committed to covering emerging stories and delving into the details of what's happening right now by bringing you the voices of people in our community, just like Eleanor, who have interesting and necessary information to share. This vital news coverage, as well as KZYX's essential music service, is made possible through community support from people just like you. So if you're a member of KZYX, thank you, because your support ensures local journalism, statewide and national coverage, and that leads to an informed public. So please help us sustain this community resource by considering joining the KZYX community today. Approximate costs to run the station include $1.50 per minute, $80 per hour, and $1,915 per day. So if you would like to become a member of KZYX and help support our community radio station, which I consider one of the last bastions of democracy is community radio, please donate today. And you can do so by calling us at 707-895-2324 by sending a check to post office box 904 um, in Philo, California, 95466, or by visiting our website at kzyx.org and clicking the link at the top of the homepage, which is definitely the easiest way. We have a whole array of wonderful thank you gifts available. And they include KZYX masks, bandanas, tote bags, socks. We have three different signed prints by Winston Smith, including one of the Green Day album cover, Insomniac. 
And we have some really awesome Eaton emergency solar and hand crank powered radios. Great for these uncertain times. <laughs> so you can view these thank you gifts on our website. That's kzyx.org. Um, once you click the donate link at the top of our homepage. And I truly hope you consider becoming a member today. So I am going to open up the phone lines at this point, and I hope to hear from some listeners out there. If you have a question or a comment for myself or for Eleanor, who is a wealth of knowledge, um, don't miss this opportunity to pick her brain. So that number is 707-895-2448. That number again is 707-895-2448. So while we're waiting to hopefully hear from some listeners, Eleanor, I know you recently founded the first cannabis herbarium, which is called Candor, and you spoke a little bit about it earlier, but I was wondering if you could share more with our listeners just about Candor and what the mission is and why is it important to document these cannabis cultivars in this way? Absolutely. So we really founded Candor because it was needed. It was a resource that we needed to do good science, and it wasn't available. And then that, you know, that knowledge really kind of shocked us. We were like, really, there's no herbarium devoted to understanding the biodiversity of cannabis? Um, You know, and it's that that thing, well, if you, you come upon something that you need and it doesn't exist, then you have to do it. You have to build it. And so that's the the driving force in the inception of candor. And it was really important to me personally, not only for the good science aspects that I was speaking on earlier, really to know what the plants are so that you can, you know, you can do good science and you can have, you know, herbalists can, can utilize that resource to know or, or doctors, you know, the material that's good for certain things or the material you're using or breeders being able to really define the material that they've developed. Um, so it's this beautiful situation where it's it's a community-run um, herbarium. Individuals will press plants and do botanical descriptions of those plants, and it's a way of making a tangible document of the plants that are in cultivation. And so it's a really good way to, sort of like the proof in the pudding, that, yes, these plants have been on my farm, or, yes, these plants have been in our community, and these are their characteristics. And in doing those really fundamental definitions, you protect the plant's ability to remain in community. And you also protect from these sort of really overreaching utility patents that are coming out where you have organizations that are saying, you know, we have a plant that has this particular chemistry, you know, and it's very general. And anything that's in that, that chemistry profile is ours. Well, the herbarium is a really good resource that the more utility that that herbarium has, the more reference ability you have for like a patent examiner to look at this utility patent and say, oh, actually, this is an overreaching patent because if I look here, there are other plants that have the same chemistry that have a different evolutionary background. So guess what? You can't own all of them. I reject this patent. And so it's a resource that we really need to be able to move forward in defining and understanding, you know, the plants that are out there and protecting the plants in, or in protecting the people who are growing these plants from being allowed to continue growing these plants, if that makes sense. Like in documenting that they exist, you prevent other organizations from coming in and saying, I own this plant. 
So that's really the main. Yeah, that definitely. Um, yeah, two drivers is really the good science aspect, and then the protection of you know, the community that's done all the work. You know, and it's not a, a unified community. It's unified through the plant. But there's many, many groups and many individuals across the globe, really, that have done immense amount of heroic work, often in the face of, you know, potentially going to jail, um, moving these plants forward and doing really amazing breeding. And it would be tragic for those plants to be lost to the community because of, you know, legal, you know, incorrect patent granting. And those sorts of things. So it's a resource that it's ideally focused on mitigating some of those negative effects of um, legalization. Yeah, absolutely. I really love what you have to say there. And I definitely have some um, further questions for you about that. But just before I dive in, I want to let our listeners know that we have a few more minutes here where we could take a couple callers. So if anybody's out there listening and they have a question or a comment for myself or for Eleanor, don't hesitate to give us a call. And the number is 707-895-2448. So that number again is 707-895-2448. So when you talk about the pressings that are submitted um, for cannabis specimens for the herbarium, are you talking about like a little leaf sample similar to what somebody would submit for the um, gender ID test? It's a little bit different than that. So we use a um, more classic plant press, which is like a 12 by 14 inch rectangle. And we um, take for a formal pressing, we'll take a, a couple vegetative pressings. So we'll take um vegetative stems that are about 10 to 12 inches long that really show the structure of the plant and veg. And then we'll also take pressings early in flower. Of course, once the flowers are glorious, huge colas, it's a bit much to press. Um, but something that shows the flower color, the flower structure, so you can really understand the characteristics that drive that particular plant or cultivar varietal. And um, those pressings are done in a special paper, you know, pressings are really cool because once you've, you've pressed either the flowers or the leaves, those, they, they really last, I don't want to say forever because that's definitely an exaggeration, but they last decades, centuries. So we have the botanical pressings from Linnaeus of cannabis that are held in the one of the botanical gardens in Sweden of the you know the first cannabis pressings that are linked to the botanical definition of the species definition of cannabis right so these types of pressings are used when we find new species you know if, if botanist goes out and finds a new species or develops a new cultivar of apple or you know whatever it is one of the first things they do is document those plants using a plant pressing and then that botanical description that they they generate would be linked to that pressing so that you have a physical, tangible example of what you're talking about. And the nice thing is that pressing, you know, because it lasts for a really, really long time, it's something you can reference back for any kind of, you know, utility, whether it be scientific use or protective use within our legal system. 
Fascinating. So is there a physical location where Canada keeps its pressings? Right now, it's very grassroots in the different regions. We have particular individuals, um, organizations that hold the pressings for those regions. And as we grow, um, COVID has definitely put a little bit of a, a weird wrinkle in gathering. And we were doing press parties and really coming together at various points in the year to do vegetative pressings of individual plants. And then again, later in the year, early flower pressings, and then putting them into the community herbariums. Um, there's one up in Humboldt and then Mendocino and then here in Sonoma County. We've got um, one in Vermont, one in North Carolina. So they're, they're kind of all over the place, and it really is um, driven by you have organizations or, or groups that understand the value of their material, and then they decide we want to document it this way, and then it you know, sort of starts as a little tiny snowball, and as more people join, that snowball within that region gets bigger and bigger. And so it's really structured in a very um, grassroots community, so there's no central repository. But as we get more and more into it, the goal is really to fundraise to put those resources, digitize them, and put them in a form where they can be useful for things like patent examiners or, or other outsiders to utilize the resource for the benefit of the community itself. But it's definitely um, a growing and small organization at the moment, but we're, we're gaining traction every season. Okay, great. Thank you, Eleanor. That's great to hear. And we do have one caller that we're going to take really quick because we only have about three minutes left. So, caller, are you live with us on the Cannabis Hour? Yes, I hour? am. Yes, I am. And I haven't heard you use the word Appalachian. Um, Appalachia. My, my son-in-law is um, drawn maps of Mendocino County, and he likes to think that some of these plants change and vary based upon where they are grown. And I don't know if you're connected to that at all, but I'd like to have, I have one other question. Um, I'd like to have you comment on the Appalachian uh, maps that might be developed over the time that are already here. You know, people know OG and, and you know, uh, just the different names that have been carried on for the generations, like what you're saying. And the other thing is I'm curious about, um, we had a marijuana museum here in Willits that has now closed, and I'm real, really sorry to hear it, because um, the difference between dried or compounds like salves and creams or liquid or, you know, some people can, can eat it, some people can't smoke it, you know, the different variants of how it's prepared, the harvesting and how that impacts and whether it's used for headaches or for seizures, you know, there's this, the, the complexity of the plant is amazing. It's been used for thousands of years by the Native American people and, and you know, in Morocco and uh, Pakalolo oh, and, yes. you know, Ganja and, I mean, it's in Africa. It's, it's an old, ancient plant. And I yes. think that there's much Thank to you, be Paula. learned about you it. Know, really we, grateful we, have a, that we only have a few, okay. a few so moments left here, so I'm just going to say thank you so much for your, for your question there. And, Eleanor, we have just a couple minutes here, so do you want to quickly yeah. comment on Appalachian? And then would you like to tell our listeners um, where they can find more information about LeafWorks and also Candor? Absolutely. Um, I'm really glad you brought up Appalachians. We are absolutely involved in the Appalachians um, discussion. We're working with Origins Council, both as Candor and as LeafWorks, to plug in to helping to define the different plants that are grown in different regions. And, of course, um, the work that we do through cultivar registration, really holding the name attached to the plant in a, in a 
in a fidel- with fidelity is exceptionally important to be able to really define appellations because what you want to know is that when you grow the same plant in different regions, you have different outcomes. And that's the power and the beauty of appellations and what makes certain plants grown in certain areas more valuable because of the way that the interaction between the environment and the plant itself expresses into a unique phenotype or a unique system of, of collection of characters. And so we are absolutely involved in that. Um, the work we do with those um, cultivar definitions is fundamental in that work. Um, part of defining your appellations is defining your plants. And so we're really happy to be working with farmers um, in various regions doing that. And we look forward to seeing how the, these first applications that are coming out and that we're working with groups on, um, you know, manifest and how they move forward. So that's a very exciting um, aspect of the work, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, if anyone is interested in finding out more information about Appalachians, the Origins Council is a really good resource. And um, we can also look to Candor online or LeafWorks.com for the work that LeafWorks is specifically doing in conjunction with those projects. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been a wonderful guest. Um, this has been another edition from, of the Cannabis Hour. We'll be back two weeks from today. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.